Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we get to this week's show, a quick reminder that the third session of the 2022 Darkwater Project Colloquium, which is titled Historical American Art, Whiteness, and the Idea of the American Nation, will pop up in your Modern Art Notes podcast feed on Monday. Session three out of six looks at Nell Irvin Painter's book, The History of White People, and extends some of its investigations into the field of historical American art. Session three will also be up on the Darkwater Project's YouTube channel probably about the same time on Monday. Thanks very much for your interest. The downloads of the Darkwater Project colloquium sessions have been uh, spectacular. Um, So thanks again. On to this week's show. This week we start with Vanessa German. German is included in Start Talking, Fisher Schull Collection of Contemporary Art, an exhibition of gifts to the North Carolina Museum of Art pledged by Hetty Fisher and Randy Schull. The show is on view in Raleigh through February 5th, 2023. Concurrently, the Mount Holyoke College Art Museum is presenting The Rarest Black Woman on the Planet Earth, German's response to the Joseph Allen Skinner Museum, an early 20th century cabinet of curiosities at Mount Holyoke. The exhibition is in previews through next week, through October 12th, and the artist will perform at the museum on October 13th. From that point, the show will remain on view through May 28th, 2023. German is also showing recent work at New York City's Kasman Gallery. That show is titled Sad Rapper. It'll be up through October 22nd. On the second segment, Black Orpheus, Jacob Lawrence in the Imbari Club at the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk, Virginia. But first, Vanessa German, after the break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. California artist Alexis Smith is widely known for working in collage, layering quotes from film and literature with movie posters, album covers, advertisements, and newspapers. She highlights the narratives embedded in our culture, asking us to think critically about how they inform our sense of self and our society. Now, through February 2022, immerse yourself in Smith's collection of images and objects, the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. From intimate artists' books to room-sized installations, visitors will witness film, literature, pop culture, and Hollywood reinvented. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. On view through January 8, 2023 at the Getty Center, the bold new exhibition Reinventing the Americas, Construct, Erase, Repeat, analyzes the mythologies and prejudices Europeans spread after they began exploring the continent and reveals the influence that those images have had on defining the Americas. The exhibition counters the views of European chroniclers, illustrators, and printmakers from the 16th to 19th centuries with artistic interventions by Danielson Baniwa, an indigenous Brazilian contemporary artist, and commentary by indigenous and Latino members of the Los Angeles community. Reinventing the Americas is presented in English and Spanish. 
Watch a documentary about Den Nielsen, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. And we're back. Vanessa German, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's really good to be here with you all and to uh, have the opportunity to share. I thought we might start with your mother, Sandra Keat German, who was a quilter and and quite a well-known quilter. Is there a relationship between quilting and your use of, your interest in assemblage? Yes, there is. I, but more so in the soul of the work, in the deepest soil of the work, which is the space of like inhabiting like with fullness, my identity as an artist, which I watched my mother do. And I watched my mother gather her materials really thoughtfully and craft a space for making with great care and intention. And so in the foundation of my existence as an artist is the recognition that it's a real life. It's a real thing to do. And it is a place of power and a place of focus. So I, I remember when my mother moved from mostly making clothing and costumes to making quilts and she would set up a quilt frame in the living room that took up a lot of space. And it would be our job as little kids to get underneath the quilt frame with Tupperware containers filled with safety pins and pin the backing of the quilt and the batting and the quilt top together. So I experienced my mother in different dimensions, piecing together towards a whole, towards a cohesive aesthetic experience of the quilt, but also a cohesive dimensional experience. Though the aesthetic experience meeting the totality of the process, meeting my mother's physical, emotional, spiritual, and political weight and presence as invested into the piecing of the quilt and the wholeness of the object. So that dimensional process and practice is the soil, the most fertile soil of my practice in assemblage of piecing a thing together, of gathering the materials, gathering the ingredients, gathering them with the like intellectual hands, spiritual hands, emotional hands, political hands, gathering them in a space of mystery, not necessarily knowing where objects are going to go or what they're going to do, but understanding through the technology of my heart and the technology of my soul that an object is a yes place, that it is a place of rightness for my work. And then also gathering materials for the engineering part of my practice. And that what I experienced in my mother's practice and in the fullness of her practice and in the fullness of her objects is that everything is available. That's a cool idea. Do you still have and live with your mother's quilt? I have, I think, where I am at the new place, I have 
one of my mother's quilts. And I got a message yesterday from a museum that showed some of my work with my mother's work probably five or six years ago. And they never sent my mother's quilts back to me. So I got a really apologetic message from a curator yesterday saying that we found your mother's quilts very carefully stored in the back of storage. And we are so sorry. And my heart just, it was such a complicated moment that I think she had recently died. That show went up and I was, I had a conversation with my siblings this weekend and I said, like, I would like whoever has some of mommy's bed quilts, like to please send me, like, I would like one or two of the quilts that she made for our beds. And to know that I have quilts that I feel like they had kind of been lost that are going to be returned to me later this week. It is, and at this, the new place where I am, it is so right and it's so special. And especially because I was just asking my siblings about getting some more quilts this weekend. In 2020, you made a work called Mother Mother. One of the things that is especially consistent, I think, across your work is your use of a booming, loud thunderous color. I think sometimes with artists who work in assemblage, you know, say, say take like a Bruce Connor works made in the 1950s or a Betty Saar works made in the 1960s, you know, over 50 or 60 years, some of that color is faded because that's what happens. But in your work, not only is the color loud, but you often use materials that ensure it will remain so going forward. And so I wanted to ask you about the color in Mother, Mother, and the way it just shouts? So when I was making that work, I listened to a lot of audio books when I'm working. And I was listening to an audio book called like The Darkest Child. And it brought up a lot of these really sort of intimate textures of being raised by a mother who was incredibly genius and incredibly creative, but also was a really light-skinned Black woman growing up in the South in Jim Crow. And so there were, with a mother who had, my grandmother had like extreme mental illness and was institutionalized for a lot of my mother's life. And So that work, Mother, Mother, it's not just about my mother. It is about my mother, but it's also about being mothered through very intense trauma and very intense systemic oppression that the resistance against which becomes dangerous. Like my mother's radical reach for her own true liberty, for her own soul's right to breathe was dangerous for her. You know, my mother was one of the people that the police handcuffed at the University of Wisconsin, and they handcuffed all the students into a truck in the back of a U-Haul truck and closed the door. And so I think about my mother doing the best that she could 
to raise us through really painful, violent, intense trauma in a time where people weren't talking about trauma and they weren't talking about self-care and they weren't talking about social healing and how my mother visited that trauma upon us, but also really worked to raise us in a way that we would have the capacity within our own political, cultural, and spiritual prowess to escape from the things that she could not escape from. And it is, you know, when people really loved my mother and she meant a great deal to people all around the country, and I hear from those people And I understand their place of deep care and connection for my mother. And I see my mother in a really expansive horizon of being. But my mother visited a lot of violence upon us. And so that work contends with being raised and mothered through generations of really sort of sometimes unstable mothers and mothers who really just had to do the very, very best that they could, or some mothering that couldn't even be in touch with the capacity to do the best you can because of mental illness and trauma. So that work is a reckoning work inside of the volumes of story and the volumes of living uh, presence of the mothering of our mother's mothering. That's awesome. That's really great. We'll we'll have images of the work on manpodcast.com, of course. Also, just really quickly, because that's another part. Color is very important to me, and I'm using color and saturated fields of color and like sort of sometimes these like heroic drips of gold for their speaking presence, for their capacity to be absorbed into emotional wavelength. So in places that language cannot bridge the challenge of really understanding that those saturated colors and the boldness of colors and the talking of color can be a place of invitation and reception for human beings who do have sight when encountering the work. I have a feeling color will come up a a few more times as we, we talk here. There's one other note about Mother Mother I want to make sure to mention. In a lot of your work, not always, but but a heck of a lot of it, the figures you construct are elevated. So they are not on a plinth in the traditional, you know, 19th century European sculpture kind of way, but they're on something, you know, a, a plank held aloft by two chairs, for example. And in this work, in Mother Mother, the the central and dominant female in the work is standing on a box and on the side of the box are the words immense value, which is just, it, it, it's actually the only place in the work where there isn't color and the words thunder. <laughs> that is, I feel like immense value was baking powder. 
Oh, is that what it is? All right. <laughs> I was yeah. wondering. So a, like a brand name, you mean? Yeah. Uh, that's an advertising box, you know? And I have always been interested in, like my grandmother would say that she was a domestic and she had to explain to me what that was like in living action. Like she was making the biscuits for another family. She was doing the laundry and starching the clothes for the husband of another man's family to make their life livable, to give them a life of ease and a life of cleanliness and a life of comfort. That was her muscle, her sweat and her labor so that she could also make biscuits for her own family. So that immense value baking powder box is the truth of the dimensional labor of the women in my family and how it would not be valued. Their bodies weren't valued. They were often not as a descendant of enslaved Africans on this land. It comes with that the rake of land of what that is and the rupture of what that is. So I'm in, when I'm using advertising boxes, I am in conversation with the sort of history of a black woman's labor on this land, the value, the lack of value of that labor. But I'm also in incorporating and integrating into the work, the presence of the secret labor, the presence of the secret work, the presence of the psychic and the spiritual labor that maintained the wholeness of that Black woman's body and the wholeness then of her being and contributing that wholeness to the wholeness of her family and her community. And to name it, you know, sometimes it works that I can find objects that speak to that magic and that power. And a lot of times it's on domestic items for domestic use, like immense value baking powder or the magic, those old soap powder boxes that have like the Batman pow, you know, thing. But it'll say, it'll say new magic, the, the brightest bright, the cleanest clean, you know, and so I'm appropriating that language towards the labor and the secret labor of the work of the women in the line of my family. And the elevation is also in bringing in, in, into the work because the work is bringing into the work just the layers of history that exist in our bodies. I'm thinking about epigenetics, I'm thinking about how much information, like how much genetic information is in our bodies. And so I'm elevating in reference to the ways that when African people were brought off of the ships that they were stolen on, they were brought into ports and they were elevated on these platforms to have their bodies checked. And so that is a reference, but it is also literally putting a figure on a pedestal. And it is also elevating it beyond the human body, beyond the figure, beyond the work of art, beyond any capacity of language to trap a single understanding about that. It is that it is like it is risen. It is a lifted up thing. We have something called the lifting up song where you elevate the wholeness and the totality of a being to the expansiveness of the sky in recognition that even the sky is always changing. So it's a way that the work is entered 
into the simultaneity of time in that place of the lifting up song where you lift up to the sky. The sky is ever expansive and is also ever changing and is thunderous then in its power and presence. And that I am soaking the work in that place of resonance also with elevation. One of the things that, for me anyway, really distinguishes your use of assemblage and sculpture is that your work is is very often narrative. You know, there's something happening, a story happening, an event happening, and you've made that happening and invited the viewer to see it. And so I know that's kind of abstract. So examples I'm thinking of are, are a work you made in 2016 called I Am Armed, I Am an Army, or a 2017 work you showed at the Mattress Factory in Pittsburgh, back when you live in Pittsburgh, called Sometimes We Cannot Be With Our Bodies. There's a period after each word, which is why I'm reading it that way. All of which is to ask, you know, are you intentionally creating narrative scenes of action? And if so, why that's important to you? So with those installations, that's intentional, yes. So partially, I think about when I was a kid and my mom would drop us off at the museum because it was like a really safe place for us to be in the summertime in L.A. She'd drop us off when the museum opened and pick us up when the museum closed. And I think about the ways that like in natural history museums, they would set up those dioramas, you know, (laughs) you would see the saber tooth tiger and the, you know, and but it would take you throughout time. And I think about the way that the museum told me when I was a little kid, what was important and how, like, that's one of the other things with like lifting things up, elevating things in my work. It was like the museum was telling me something with that elevation also. And so there is that sense of experiencing work in a way that is moving and is acknowledging the power of story. So I'm a story person as a human being, and there are certain ways that I have experienced people talking about story and me being involved in story that is really powerful. One is just considering the story field that we all exist in as human beings on the planet Earth. And the other is this idea that the future belongs to the best story and that the universe is made of stories. So I am a story person, I'm a writer, I'm a performer, and the, and I'm a theater person. So that theatricality and the narrative insertion, that's intentional. And especially in those installation works, because I'm making power figures, I'm making work for the living realm, I'm making work for the technology of the human heart, I'm making work to exist beyond the moment of the site, I'm making work to exist to, to walk away with people and to live inside of them. And for me, the way to do that, in addition to all of the, you know, the material choices I'm making is by putting a story in the room that people breathe in and you walk out with that story inside of you also. But it's a living story that continues to add and to develop as like the humans move through the world. And so, yes, purposeful. 
Your work is often full of references to African art historical practice, Galede masks, for example, or, or you mentioned power figures a moment ago, Nkisi power figures. And so a number of those African objects were made and are made to be used in performative events, you know, be they a procession or a parade or a, yeah, a ritual, you know, whatever form that ritual takes. Are you, I don't know, Americanizing or, or mindfully bringing into your practice the ways in which those objects are used? So, so not just bringing those objects into your practice and jumping off from them, but are you mindful of building into your practice the full totality of why those objects were made and how they've been used? No, I don't do that. Ah. And so here's the thing. If I'm using a made object that is like a sort of, I don't know the best way to say this. So, Well, obviously I didn't either in the way I phrased the question. Yeah, (laughs) I have, there's a piece that's at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art called Souvenir of Our Trip. And it's got two colonial figures that are made in the style of these carved colonial figures from West Africa, right? But the figures that I'm using were made in Taiwan in their resin. And so one of the things, so I'm not making a reference to the original object solely and its use, but what one of the things that I'm bringing up is what exists and what has been, what objects have been made to exist in the place of the rupture. You know, there are so many things that I do not know about, like I can only chase my family line back to Louisiana, to a plantation. And no, I cannot chase my family line across the ocean. And so in the rupture, of people who have like a ruptured family line. There are all of these souvenir objects. There are all of these things that have been made to bridge the place of rupture. And when, you know, as a African in America, as you know, when I went to Africa and I'm at the green market in South Africa, there were all these objects that Africans were telling me like Kunta Kinte wore that. Like that is the the tiger tooth that was around Kunta Kinte's neck or Nelson Mandela held this purse. Like there were ways that even when I was in Africa, African people were engaging in capitalism on behalf of like their life, but also recognizing that there's a place of rupture that many African-Americans want to fill and that that work is being taken up around the world. So there's, when I'm using something in my work, it is never an object that has been danced. It is never an object that has been worn in ritual. It is always like third generation removed from that. It's often something that has been made for African-Americans to buy, to feel connected to Africa. And that's a very specific thing. Like in Sad Rapper, the show that's in Kasman now, there's a Yoruba priest hat that I found at TJ Maxx in Western North Carolina. I couldn't believe it. I was like, why is this Yoruba hat here? Why is this in TJ Maxx? And it was being so, even this object that was made for 
commercial design market, it was being treated so poorly at TJ Maxx. Like it was, <laughs> it was so dusty and all of the beads had gotten trapped in the metal shelving. So I had to break it to get it apart. But to me, what's being, there's that object exists in a very specific way. And it is not a thing, anything that has anything to do with Yoruba. It doesn't have anything to do with Africa. It has something to do with us here. And so when I'm using, you know, there's another piece in Sad Rapper called The Envy. And there are seven masks that I bought off of a street corner in New York when I was going to Madison Square Park. And I know that those masks are made for design. They're made for decoration. They're made to communicate texture and they're made to communicate totally different things. And so I am not using them in respect to whatever is their original historical, cultural, spiritual reference at all. But I'm asking them to do different cultural, historical, spiritual work now. Because the work that I make, I'm always asking the work to do something, which is why oftentimes it is so theatrical. It is performative. It is sometimes loud. You know, sometimes I walk into rooms with like certain bodies of work and there's, there's a volume to the work that I don't always experience when it's all in studio being made. And so, but I'm still, what I am in the practice of is asking the work to do something and investing love and investing heart, investing magic, investing miracle, investing soul, investing the invisible realms into the object. And that's like the closest connection that I can have because I didn't know that what I started out making had anything to do with the Congo or Nkisi. Somebody had to tell me that that was something that had been happening for thousands of years. I did not know that. There's an interview you did with Bomb Magazine maybe seven or eight years ago in which you tell that story. We'll include a link to it on, on the show page at manpodcast.com. I think what you just said about activation and the intensity that objects have sounds a lot like something I've heard Renee Stout talk about over the years. Mm -hmm. I love Renee. Yeah, I know you two know each other. And so I think that exists in her work too, in a very different way. So like your work often thunders from across a room and with Renee Stout's work, you've got to walk right up to it. And the more time you spend understanding, you know, why a little bottle is there on a table or whatever, the, the, the more you understand the implications and intensities of that specificity. That's what I think about with Renee too. Sometimes bottles on tables. Yeah. And <laughs> like there's a subtle call. There's a subtle but steady call of her work. Oh, that's a skill, right? It just yanks you across the room to it. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of whispering magic. You know, that's that subtle, consistent call. That's why I think about the way that people have said that Thich Nhat Hanh moved like a tractor trailer and a cloud at the same time. And so like her work is, well, also it's like her. She's very powerful. She's a very, very powerful human being. And her work is dimensionally powerful. Yeah, I'm, I'm a giant fan you know, speaking of, of other assemblage artists, assemblage has a just 
fantastically rich history and particularly a rich American history. And for me, sometimes that history gets flattened a bit. So, you know, Bruce Connor is not at all like Betty Sarr, right? So is there a particular American tradition of assemblage that you think of yourself as fitting within? No, not on me on my own, but there's not a particular tradition. And especially if we're just, you know, locating it in America. So like assemblage is kind of human technology and it's vast and is not like I wouldn't contain it within any geographical or like art historical timeline. I feel like that is like, I feel like it has its convenience, but given where we are as human beings on the planet, it's like too reductive. But I love Bruce Connor though. I love Bruce Connor. I, 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 I said a little haunty. A little, a little terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, maybe cause I grew up during the cold war as I guess you did too. Right. Uh-huh. And, and Bruce Connor's perpetual, uh, Fear of fear of the bomb is like, I don't know if I was afraid of the bomb, but I know I knew I was aware of the uncertainty that was the superpower context contest. Can I ask a question really quick about that? Yeah, sure. Do you remember some of the first times you heard the phrase mutually assured destruction? Oh yeah. And I, I yeah, me um, too. Yeah, I mean, and and to this day, like the first thing I thought of when you said that phrase, and it's always the first thing I thought of, and it's Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> you know, the movie, the... Um, I've never seen it. Dr. Strangelove is a movie about the absurdity. It, it's got Peter Sellers playing nine different roles. It's about the absurdity of mutually assured destruction. So, yeah, and, and, and it's a movie that I think could fairly be said to either, you know, partially come out of Bruce, Bruce Connor and, and, and certainly, you know, it sits on a shelf with, with Bruce Connor. You know, one of the things that very often to almost always in your work is a focus on the body. I mean, lots of assemblage artists, um, lots of artists who do sculpture and installation are not anywhere near as interested in in the body as as you are. So I'm, I'm sure that must be a conscious, determined choice. And I wonder why the body has remained so central and important to you. For me, I think of... One that one of the things I'm working with is life and is human life and the scale of human life in a relationship to the systems that we've constructed in relationship to nature, in relationship to time. And I'm also interested in the secret worlds that the body contains through like our brain and nervous system. And for me, I made a decision that the body was, this is the way that I said it. Like at the time, like almost 20 years ago, I was like, the body will be my canvas. And then I also want to say that for me, as coming from people whose bodies were picked apart, and whose bodies were so visited, like, you know, in recent, in very recent, like, historical memories, such, like, incredible cruelty and violence visited upon our bodies. I had to do a lot of work as a child, as a Black child, as a human being, to recognize my body as its own and 
that is ongoing work of pulling back in every single ingredient that I can muster to hold and to understand the mystery of my humanity while in this body. So one of the characteristics of your address of the body is that your figures are always or almost always pretty close to human size, right? I mean, you're not, you're not giving us 40-foot people. <laughs> and so I would guess that part of your consideration and how to present bodies is tied to making them roughly human size. And I wonder why that part of it seems to be, is or seems to be important to you. Well, that wasn't necessarily important to me. Like I began making work in a state of extreme poverty with very little access to resources or tools. And I worked with what I could find. And so from working with what I could find and that work allowing me to add tools to my studio practice, things have grown, but they could never grow past a place of a residential sized doorway because that's all where I was working, I would work to the extent of my resources. So for me, that was like not being a person with a vehicle. And if I made an object, I knew that I would have to be able to carry that object on the city bus. So that's what I would do. Like I would put an object that might be two and a half feet tall next to me on a seat on the city bus. And I would have to take it to wherever what little show was being juried on the bus, one object at a time. And then I, you know, for a sad rapper, I could build things to a place where then partially completed, we had to move them to a space, a shared space that had a garage door so that we could get them out of the door. So I had always just done the best that I could to work to the extent of my resources. There's a story I've read you told in at least one or two other interviews where when you were making work in your home studio in Pittsburgh, you always found it kind of vaguely heartbreaking. I think that was your word to have to take an object apart to get it out of the building and to wherever it was going that you, you. Yeah. I didn't understand that because I could stand, like I just, I, it just wasn't present with me that because I could walk down the stairs to get to the basement and I could stand at full height in the basement didn't mean that I could get an object out of that doorway. And so, yeah, that was like crushing. It was crushing to have to, and we couldn't, you can't take it apart. Like we had to break things. And that's when I started working on the front porch. That's when I started working outside and I took over the whole house because, you know, that was, it was heartbreaking and it was also depressing. Like I had to live with that. <laughs> I had to live with that. I, you know, it's, it's, it's like, there's a key difference between people who look at art and think about art for a living and people who make art for a living. I, you know, being, being a looker, I never, I shouldn't say never. I, I forget about mechanics. <laughs> yeah. And also like people, like when you have the resources and you have space, you can do different things with it and like can we look at a spectrum of work and respect that artists are you know that there are limitations imposed upon the artists and it's just sometimes it's a very very human place 
it's very simple and very human. A few minutes ago, I think we both kind of obliquely referenced that you write and perform poetry. In fact, when you lived in Pittsburgh, for example, you wrote and read a poem at the inauguration of Mayor Bill Peduto. What is the relationship between poetry and your sculptural practice? Well, like, so I fluster around at the beginning of this question because the most honest way that I can answer it is that I am not living my life with separation. So if you've listened to any interviews that I do, I try to make it a point to distinguish that I am involved fully and expansively in my entire existence as an artist. And so whatever is available to the limbs of my being as an artist, I will reach towards, towards expression, towards experimentation, towards mystery, towards building the thing. So anything that comes through the window of my imagination, of my heart, of my, of like the visceral sort of knuckly need of the artist that is the center of my soul, I'm going to reach towards that. And so that means that I'm experiencing the same process over and over and over again with just different materials. Language is a material. Language, um, poetry is a sculptural form for me. And I still like invest this place of soul. I invest Uh, research into it, I invest a place of purpose into that. Like everything in my existence is sculptural. My relationships are sculptural. My relationship with my own body, my love relationships, my romantic relationships, my institutional relationships, I experience them all as sculptural. I experience like every ingredient, every conversation, every moment of eye contact, every smile, all of it exists for me as like an ongoing accumulative sculpture. So when I'm working with language, I am working with it sculpturally and I'm working with it intentionally and I'm working with it lovingly and within a place of purpose and in a place of freedom and a place to experience liberty. And so oftentimes any work of art that I've made, I can also perform that work. People just don't ask me to do it. Like it doesn't get programmed in there's a big body of work at a museum, you know, I will offer that to people, you know, I offer it. And sometimes I've gotten to do it where I do these walk and talks through the space. And like any human being that's in the group can ask me to stop and perform a work that is there. And it's a lot of fun. They just don't choose it often. You know, the people, they want people to sit down, I guess, in theaters and Okay, so you know how in the art world, you know, we're all used to seeing title cards where there's the title of the work, the year it was made, and then a list of materials, you know, oil on canvas. Sometimes in your list of materials in a work, you know, you'll you'll use 135 words. (laughs) Are those poems? Sometimes more so than other times. What they are, are the truth. What it is, is the, the true materials that are visible and invisible that went into that work. So, but there are times when I will like expound upon experiential material in the work. And it is a lot more poetic than me just saying, though the police killed somebody outside of my studio, which is some, which has to be an ingredient in the sculptures that were in the studio when that happened. Cause it, it shakes the studio, like your walls are literally shaking, you know? so. And then other times I will give 
more depth and more information about invisible materials, which can make it a lot more poetic. My favorite example, if I get to have a favorite, is the Work Boots Blackbird from 2021. The materials list, which includes, quote, Toni Morrison telling us about the flying Africans, comma, the breeze from the wings of the flying Africans, comma, and, you know, many more words from there. So just to give people an example, we'll have an image of that work and the complete list of materials on, uh, on, 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 on the show page. In a related story, one of your frequent moves, if you will, is to reference emotion is to reference emotion both in your work, you know, in the object itself, in the three-dimensional object itself, but also in its title, in, in the list of materials. You, you foreground emotion, gosh, as much as like just about anybody I can think of. So maybe, for example, a 2019 sculpture titled Hypersensitive Feeling Machine Body Soul Emotion Volume Control. You know, it's really making sure the viewer can't miss emotion as being central to the work and the experience of the work. So was that always a goal or a priority or was addressing emotion and let's face it in contemporary art, the forces of commerce and academic intellectualism can insist on purging art of feeling (laughs) is insisting on emotion, something that just always came naturally to you or did you have to find permission for it to do it in one way or another? So I had people tell me not to be emotional or not to express sensitivity through my work. They said it was dangerous and that people wouldn't take me seriously. But at the same time, I was experiencing in the culture these massive acts of public violence where there was sort of this kind of celebration for and a sense of reward given, especially I experienced this through social media when people were unemotional about it. And I was like, you're fucking kidding me. Like, this is devastating. This is traumatic. And there is, is there no safe place and is there no is there no safe public space of grace to hold and bear this emotion and to do that in a way that has a full circle so that we are not compounding um like have a co- emotional constipate, constipation into other enormous acts of violence and also coming up as a you know an emotional being all the different times and ways that people told me that there wasn't space for it, but then there would be a punitive response to like a, to expressing emotion. And so at, there was a time when I really identified something that was for me called the epidemic of fearlessness in this country. Like people were just over black people getting killed by the police. They were just over feeling or any expression of things. And then having drastically different like social experiences after large like public catastrophes. But there were times that I definitely identified that space would be made for emotional response to things happening to people with certain kinds of bodies in this world. So intentionally to make honest space for what was real material and real ingredient, I began to like intentionally insert the emotional spaces. And sometimes it's hate and sometimes it's rage. 
And that was also as a, you know, a fat black queer woman, the uh, sometimes the only safe place that I could say that I was outraged and that I was consumed with rage and that I was like frustrated with rage would be in the material section of my sculpture. And then that rage became less dangerous for oftentimes white people or white institutions who were presenting the work or, you know, like it became something that they didn't have to worry about calling the police or security about because the rage was just contained between commas on the material list for an object that wasn't going to get up and actually scream or cry or need anything, you know? And so it was like personal, but also in response to what I call the epidemic of fearlessness. Because I was definitely always invited to feel bad when things happen to certain people. But I was not often invited to feel bad or to be comforted in feeling or to be even validated in emotional response to things that happen to Black folks. I think that might be a pretty good two-sentence definition of much of the white-led art museum sector. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's really, I, I appreciate that answer a lot. I, there's, there's a lot there to, there's a lot there. I have two more things I want to ask about. One of your more frequent moves is the use of disembodied eyes in three-dimensional objects, two-ish dimensional objects. For example, a year or two ago, made a Serena Madonna out of a Serena Williams Vogue magazine cover, and it included disembodied eyes. I think Mother Mother that we were talking about earlier has two sets of disembodied eyes. Why disembodied eyes? What, what, what do they do for you and how do you like to use them? Bringing into the work that the work is not just an object, it exists in the simultaneity of time. It exists in a long line of sight and that sight is present. So thinking of ancestral sight, thinking of also, depending on the color of the eyes, they're like, if they're blue eyes, I'm bringing into the gaze, bringing the gaze into it, you know, the into the work and it's staring back at you. It's gazing out at everyone. But a lot of the times it is the eye of your soul. It is the presence of enduring soul. It brings into the work, the eye of nature, like the connective, the eyes of and so for me, sometimes it's secret language, it's secret work. It is the work that I often will not ever get asked in a museum setting or in an interview about um, the soul of the work and how I am activating love inside of the work. That is a very cool idea. I also, you know, they're also just fun to find within the work. And, 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 and I found that as I look at your work and I find them, I'm then prompted to reckon with them, right? I mean, you know, because it's like something is looking out at you, it is a, a human prompt to reckon with both the object, but also what the eyes mean in the context of that object. Finally, I suspect quite a number of our listeners know that you have the most generous, exuberant, thoughtful Instagram account on earth. <laughs> I often read your IG posts and think to myself, gosh, I wish I could write like that. Really? Because you're a professional. I'm definitely. <laughs> well, you're a professional writer, too. Nobody's ever asked me to read it, you know, the inauguration of a public figure. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Not yet. <laughs> yeah. I, I, something tells me it'll be a cold day in hell. One of the constants in your Instagram account is you jumping. And I mean that, you know, for listeners who haven't seen your IG account, and we'll have a link to it on the show page. You know, you literally have these posts in which you are jumping exuberantly. Why? What, what, what about jumping as uh, an expression and as a way of sharing yourself works for you? So like the history of me and jumping is I'm fat. And I'm also like, and have been my whole fat life, super athletic, you know, like I got offered a college scholarship to play tennis. I was a gymnast and a cheerleader and I could always jump higher with more flexibility (laughs) than all the other cheerleaders. Right. And so, but it also really feels amazing to feel like you're flying. And so that's like the history of me jumping. I can jump and I can jump flexibly. So I was driving back across the country and we were at Yosemite and we had to get back across the country on a like time limit, which really didn't feel great. And that sense of that sense of like expansive, explosive, ecstatic joy of being in the Redwood Forest or being at Yosemite in the valley or and it's just too much. It's too too much for your eyes. It's too much for language. It's you can't run your fingers over all of Half Dome. You can't you, you can't like drink all of the bridal bell waterfall, but you can like have a split moment of ecstatic flight that says yes to all of the things in the universe that are saying yes at the same time. And for me, I just, you know, coming across the country, being close to nature, being on the Great Salt Flats, being in Red Rocks, like that is, and because we were also like, we would be driving through these amazing places. I'd be like, let's get out and jump. And we would stop the car and I would, and we would all like everybody in the car would jump, you know, and we would, we'd be like, okay, let's get back in the car. And so that was our way of joining in like the universal yes of life and nature and the joy of being able to be like so awake in a moment of ecstasy that that's what we have is a leaping moment of flight. Mm, that's awesome. It's also, you know, a heck of a move for a sculptor, right? I mean, sculptures are governed by by holding still and by gravity. And the jump the jumping posts are, you know, the antithesis of all that. <laughs> and they're great fun. Vanessa German, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. For more than 30 years, Los Angeles-based artist Andrea Bowers has made art that activates. Combining artistic practice with activism and advocacy, the work speaks to deeply entrenched inequities and the generations of activists working to create a more just world. This summer, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the first museum retrospective surveying the entire scope and evolution of Bowers' production. Bringing together over 60 works and a trove of ephemera, the exhibition reflects Bowers' experimentation with a wide range of mediums and her impact as a chronicler of contemporary history. Andrea Bowers, on view at Hammer from June 19th to September 4th. 
Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. Women Painting Women, on view May 15th through September 25th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Women Painting Women features 46 female artists who choose women as subject matter in their works. This presentation, international in scope, includes evocative portraits that span the late 1960s to the present. All place women, their bodies, gestures, and individuality at the forefront, conceiving new ways to activate and elaborate on the portrayal of women. The artists highlighted in the exhibition use painting and women as subject matter and range from early trailblazers like Alice Neal and Emma Amos to emerging artists such as Jordan Castile and Apollonia Sokol. Women Painting Women at the Modern through September 25th. Welcome back. Next up, Kimberly Gant joins me to discuss the exhibition Black Orpheus, Jacob Lawrence, and the Ambari Club, which opens at the Chrysler Museum of Art in Norfolk, Virginia, this weekend. Gant co-curated the show with Indabisi Ezalomba. The exhibition's on view in Virginia through January 8, 2023. It explores the connection between Lawrence and his contemporaries based in the Global South via the Nigerian journal Black Orpheus and the presentation of their work at Nigeria's Ambari Artists and Writers Club. After debuting in Norfolk, the show will travel to New Orleans and to Toledo. The exhibition is accompanied by a really good catalog published by Yale University Press in association with the Chrysler and the New Orleans Museum of Art. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for 50 bucks. Kimberly Gant, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thank you for so much for having me. In 1962, when he was about 45 years old, Jacob Lawrence first traveled to Nigeria, and he would go back again a couple years later. Why did he go to Nigeria, and what is the story of an impact of that visit that your exhibition and really excellent book explores? So I'm super excited to talk about this moment in Lawrence's history. And he actually went the first time for an exhibition that was hosted by the American Society for African Culture, which was an organization of African-Americans. It was based in New York that was really trying to promote this kind of cross-conversation, cross-colonization between African-Americans and, and Africans on the continent. So previous to Lawrence going, and he was a member, he and his wife were both members of this organization. His wife, Gwendolyn Knight. Yes. And they would, there would be salons and lectures and conversations where they would bring different artists and scholars from, you know, West Africa, East Africa, books that were coming out. And so they would have conversations. And and so that, I think, really much worked, you know, kind of really got some of those ideas in Lawrence's head. But we also have found uh, letters that he had written to his former dealer, Edith, and talking about how, you know, Africa was really the, the cradle of human civilization and how so many other artistic practices, you know, kind of evolved from Africa. And he felt at this moment in the 60s, this post also independence era, that, uh, this would have been a really exciting dynamic time uh, for him to go and to kind of see the continent, see the different countries there and kind of learn personally what's happening there and the artistic practices and the different artists who were creating. There were specific geographies, if you will, both institutions and places that were prepared to receive him. And those places are central to the story of your show and book. What are those places? So there was the Ambari Artists and Writers Club, 
which was already kind of, that was already existing and they had already, and that came actually also in 62, but the, the group of the Embarra Club actually came out of artists and writers who were already participating in a journal that had been founded in 1957 called Black Orpheus. So kind of the main figure that's attached to it is Uli Beyer, Jan Hein Jans, another German writer. They were both expats living in Nigeria, working there, but very quickly were, they were teaching at the universities, University of Baden, and, but also, you know, meeting with younger writers, seasoned writers and artists who were already there and really wanted to promote African literature, um, not only just on the continent, but abroad. They had attended the First World Congress on, you know, some say Negro, some say Black artists, writers that was at their Sorbonne in 56, that was hosted by uh, Présence Africaine and the director there. And so they really felt that that journal, which was really focused on Francophone literature and, and Francophone African culture, there needed to be kind of a complement for looking at the Anglophone side. So the journal came about, and from the very beginning, there were visual artists that were included in that journal. And so from there, they kind of created the different artists and writers that were that were a part of it, created a club, a, a salon that started in Ibadan, which at that time was really the kind of academic center was formerly before independence had been the capital. And so we're bringing in artists and we're wanting to kind of connect those figures on the ground with other scholars and artists, especially from the African diaspora abroad, that were coming into the continent and really wanted to foster and facilitate conversations and dialogues. So Lawrence came. He came for about 10 days the first time. The show had been up in Lagos. And so Bayer had asked for the show to be brought to the space in Ibadan that same year. And then in 63, Black Orpheus also did, uh, produced an article on Lawrence and William H. Johnson. And so Lawrence is there and he's meeting some of these artists that are a part of cultural milieu, uh, you know, of Ibadan at the time. And also there's discussions and thoughts that he also maybe went to a Shugbo, which was kind of more of a rural trading city, but it was also developing its own uh, workshops through uh, Duro Ladipo, who had a space there. So he had kind of developed a site called Mbari Mbayo. So Lawrence is discussing meeting. We don't know all the details of exactly what's happening, but there's discussions that he was leading workshops, that there's images of him talking to young people and different artists. And so that was this kind of short excursion that he goes on. And then he and his wife both go back kind of on their own sabbatical, essentially, for about eight months in 1964. Yeah. Uh, so just to fill in some geography, Ibadan is about 70 miles from Lagos and a Sugbo, a Shogbo? Am I saying it right? Shogbo. Yeah, you kind of, yeah. It's about, about another 70 miles more inland from, from there. One of the things that you note in the catalog and then kind of move on from is that some of Lawrence's ability to go to Nigeria, or at least what, you know, the place that provides the money, was in fact a CIA front. Does that matter? So, I mean, he didn't get funding, as far as we know, for this eight-month trip. As far as we understand, you know, he and his wife, they sold their apartment. 
they got some funding from uh, different, you know, individual sponsors, and there have been discussions about him teaching. I don't know if that actually came to fruition, but what the CIA situation was was there was, you know, we had the Cold War happening with uh, the Soviet Union. And so to help combat that, they wanted to also, it was a kind of a fight for culture, who would kind of have cultural supremacy. And so the CIA kind of had this kind of cultural arm uh, called the Congress for Cultural Freedom, CCF. And so that was actually based in Paris and was actually giving funds to a lot of different organizations around the world, including AMSAC and the Ambari Club. Now, there's questions as to whether or not anyone knew, so that is unclear, but I think regardless of how he got there and the, and, and, and the organizations that were he was working with and dialoguing with, I think ultimately the bigger, more important conversation, the fact that there was all of this exchange, dynamic, artistic occurrences happening you know, that he was a part of, that he wasn't a part of as well, and that was happening at this time. And so I think it's less about who was funding it and more about the fact that it was actually happening and that it was having very strong resonances and impacts locally, nationally, and internationally in this period. And of course, the United States still to this day, albeit through presumably, apparently, (laughs) different mechanisms engages in cultural diplomacy of all sorts. At the beginning of the project, you present Lawrence's 1964 to 66 paintings of and informed by Nigeria. And I think in the catalog, you and your co-authors refer to that work as Lawrence's Nigeria series. Did Lawrence consider his paintings of and in Nigeria as a discrete group, the way he did his narrative series that are you know, so fantastically famous? Or when we talk about his Nigeria series, are we mostly talking about just work he made there or of there? I haven't found anything to kind of clearly answer how, how he felt because he created several works while he was there, but then he also went back and did, and he didn't physically go back, but he continued to add to some of those with several works a few years later after he and Gwen had returned. So I think the the time there was profoundly impactful. I don't know that he kind of was really conceptualizing it as a very specific body. You know, a lot of it, it was not kept together, like with other series that he had done. And there's nothing to kind of state that he was kind of crafting this whole kind of narrative within the, the letters that I have found, you know, there's still a lot out there that I don't know. So I will very readily, and I'm not a Lawrence expert, so there's still much I, I'm still trying to find out. But what I will say is that I, I've kind of tried to conceive it in this kind of grouping and we're calling it that other scholars have kind of referred to his series in Nigeria And so, but I think it's, again, it really reiterates the fact that he did oftentimes work in series, that the series also spans a few different mediums that were not new to me, but I think was really show kind of a difference in how he can think about similar places and ideas. And also, I think people are used to his series being very large. This is a much smaller group of work. And so I think it also gives you a different way of seeing how he could work, that it wasn't necessarily he had to work in these big voluminous numbers, but sometimes in much more smaller depictions, numbers of depictions. 
when he paints Nigeria, what does he paint? What characterizes his work of and that engages with Nigeria? He focused a lot on the marketplaces. So there's a lot of images of, you know, kind of the open, the public marketplaces, the street scenes there, a lot of commerce between the market women and and the individuals that are attending the, the marketplaces. Again, you also see a lot of images of women, you know, these beautiful little intimate scenes of, you know, mothers plaiting daughters hair, mothers with babies on their backs. So you see these kind of very public displays and these very kind of intimate, communal, familial friendship moments. And as well as a few images kind of looking at, I think, different kind of rich, more kind of ritual, spiritual practices. So I think still continuing into themes and ideas that he had already been doing, but showing both the similarities, but also the differences. I think what I was really excited about is when I see the work, I can see the resonances of his already existing practice. But I also saw the things I had seen in Nigeria when I was doing my dissertation research. So it felt also very specific that he was really seeing his observation skills were, you know, as keen as ever. And he was really seeing what was happening in this new environment that he was in that, you know, I wonder if it was both very different, but also somewhat familiar in certain ways. One of the things that jumps out to me in looking at the Nigeria pictures in the catalog is that they are almost all dense in one way or another, usually dense with people. Sometimes in the case of a painting titled Roosters from 1964, dense with Cubist winks winks at cubist roofs but the these lawrence's in your show the thing that just screams at me is their density yeah i mean they're very there's so much your eye does not settle on these like roosters is a roosters meat market is another example street to Mbari, you know those works especially you feel the the idea of how many people are in one place at one time the buildings, everything's kind of layered. But I also think he's very much, as we kind of know, he you know talks about that he sees the world in pattern, shape, and color. So I think he was also really looking at the way the light is different, what colors were different, how things are organized, how space is divided, how people move, all the patterns of the prints and colors of the clothing, the energy of, of like, all of these black people in one space, you know, engaging in their day-to-day lives, but the amount of people that could do that. And, and, you know, Lagos is an incredibly large city. And even though at the time that he's going, it is not, it was definitely not as large as it is now. I can still imagine just all of the people that he was around. And I know my first time going to, you know, a fabric market or meat market. I mean, it. there's just, you know, it, it's people everywhere. The markets just keep going on into the horizon, it feels as if. So I think he very much probably felt that and saw that. And I wonder how he compared the density of the cities he was seeing in Nigeria to, you know, how he was living in New York. One more thing on Lawrence before going on to some of the other artists in the show. I'm always fascinated by Lawrence's palette. He's got 
such a specific way with color that maintains its specificity really across his career. Is his palette in these pictures of Africa different from his palette of what he's doing in the United States, pictures of the United States in the 1960s or 70s? I think the palette is very similar. I mean, like the reds, the blues, the greens, you know, but I think there's certain shifts or I think they were already experimentations he had been doing in like the previous years. I think the black figures were, I think, went, went more from a brown to a black. In the Nigeria works, I feel like there's more of the kind of that yellow, that kind of muted yellow. I think you're, I think there is too. I mean, that really jumped out at me as well. And I think that also reflects the landscape there. So I think that's a, a color that is much more visible. Also, maybe white. I feel like white is one that you see more in this series, it, it, like in the way in which it's very specifically used to highlight certain things. Again, and I also think because he's looking at tin roofs and different things, there's some additional colors that are being added to to really highlight the specificity of the architecture that's in Nigeria. And I think the tones are, you know, there's lighter hues of the of those of his signature colors a lot more because he's really highlighting the patterns in the fabric material. So I think that's a bit different. The time when Lawrence is in Africa and when he's engaging with and having influence on artists there is the time when Pan-Africanism is really emerging into a certain, I don't know, institutional maturity. I mean, it's when the Organization of African Unity, which of course is now the African Union, is formed. Do we see influences of that movement either in Lawrence's work or in the work of other artists in the show? I don't know. I think Lawrence knew who he was. Lawrence knew who he was. I mean, he was an established artist who had been working professionally for decades. I think he probably was more influenced by what he was, who he was engaging with what they were dialoguing about, the people he was meeting and what he was seeing. I think he really was just thinking about, you know, what was in front of him. One wonders if he obviously saw the parallels between the civil rights movement and all of the issues that were happening in the United States with this, you know, initial post-independence movement in Nigeria and you know, the political situations at the time, very, you know, very different in this in the sense of because Nigeria is a black dominated country. And so they were governing themselves. But there's still there were still obviously issues in between cultural specificities and uh, different communities who were vying for political power, you know, religious context and all of that. But you know, but there were still issues with, you know, the British government and those types of things. So whether or not I think that had an issue that that was playing out in his work, I can't say. I will say that I don't think he is presenting a purely romanticized version of Nigeria. I think you see these hints where you'll see plates on people's heads, you know, of food and there's like flies and you see like you see the ground as opposed to roads so I do think that he's not try to kind of embellishing the an idea, 
And he talks in certain letters about he recognizes the privilege that he had as an American coming to Nigeria and kind of moving through, you know, this country in that way. Now, I think with other artists, you know, that are in the show, artists that, you know, from the Zaria, you know, Art Society, you've got Bruce and Barkpea, you've got Uche Okeke. I mean, and you've got the artists who are, you know, informally taking classes in the workshops at the Imbari and Bio. You know, this is a moment when, again, they're figuring out, okay, there's been a Nigeria for 100 years at this point, but it's been under colonial British rule. So now this is a new Nigeria that we, those who have lived and been here and developed it over centuries are now in charge of, but we're not necessarily unified under the idea of Nigeria because I'm still Igbo, Hausa, Yoruba. You know, I live in this part of the country, that part of the country. This is what my livelihood is based on. So what I think people are doing is really just trying to figure out a, what does it mean to be Nigerian? Can you create an art based on that, you know, kind of nationalistic underpinning? And how do I create work that's also cosmopolitan and modern that's going to be seen on a world stage and that can have people feel that it can sit in a world stage? So I think these are questions and ideas that artists are grappling with, you know, especially those that are kind of, you know, going into the university training method and are seeing that, you know, they're still being educated in this very Eurocentric model where there's a belief that there's no history of African art. There is no African art. There's no African art history. And these artists are going, that's BS. There's centuries. There's millennia. So we need to incorporate our own practices and traditions into whatever we create so that we really demonstrate that and that no one can question that there is no history here, that there very much is, and it should be pri- you know, put forth and prominent. And, and of course, Lawrence would have been familiar with those questions about art and its role in participating in and helping to create new nationalisms, because a decade earlier, his struggle series does, does, extends and revises some of that work in the United States, as does much of Lawrence's other work. So in terms of the work by African artists in the show... Do you find, see, argue for Lawrence's influence within it or their influence on him? No, because I think that's taking away the agency of what the artists were doing themselves. You know, Lawrence was there for a pretty short amount of time. And yes, he was dialoguing with different people, but these artists had very much their own careers. And so living there and really trying to facilitate their own legacies and histories and practices, you know, maybe they were excited to kind of meet him and dialogue with him, but that doesn't take away from anything that they were already doing and had been doing and did after he left. So it's more for me about the fact that especially Black Orpheus as a journal was really trying to promote these generation of of new of younger artists at this time, artists who are now considered, you know, icons, writers who are considered icons, Chenua Achebe, Wole Soyinka, like I said, Kolero Magbe, Ibrahim El Salahi, you know, artists who were much more 
you know, who have either passed or, or very advanced aged at this time. And but at the at the time in which these projects were having these exhibitions, these are they're young, you know, they're coming out of university, they're getting their teaching positions, they're establishing themselves locally, you know, nationally, like on the world stage, working to do that. And so I think that it was great for them to have exposure and they did get exposure to other artists and training through workshops for, for some of them. And so what I'm hoping that the show is doing is showing that there, there was this cross pollination of, of, of conversations, but that there was this already existing environment of, of art practice happening on the continent that we can't ignore that we should not ignore that we should know and that the fact that though we live in a moment now where the facilitation of conversations across the globe is much easier through the internet and the technology that we have that that has happened for hundreds of years before too that we've always humans have always been engaged and influenced and and just learning about what's happening in other parts of the world. Not easily, but it has happened. And so this is a particular moment where a lot of art creation is happening because of the socio-political economic environment in which these artists and writers are living. The show and the catalog are not transatlantic only in that they are they are between the United States and Nigeria. But South America comes into your story, too. How do Brazil and Brazilian artists fit into Black Orpheus itself and into the exhibition? So, yeah, that was a wonderful opportunity. So you have Uli Beyer, who was really this kind of connector. He's this kind of floating presence, I call him, in the show, because he was really the he brought a lot of these artists into the Black Orpheus, you know, kind of in promoting them, you know, definitely there was some problematics, but so he was traveling to Brazil, met these artists through some different collectors that were also coming to Nigeria, Pierre Verger and Mario Crevo. And so through some of them, he also met artists that they were working with in Brazil. And I think that there was supposed to have been some I think I was trying to bring some African artists to Brazil to do a show that didn't quite up happening, but he was able to actually do a small exhibition of some of these Brazilian artists that he met, you know, in Ibadan, there's a exhibition catalog. So we were able to, and, and, and he wrote about some of these artists, like I said, Gennardi Carvalho, uh, Wilson Tibiero and Agnaldo dos Santos, Manuel dos Santos. And I think Bayer also had a very specific, he had a very specific, artist in many ways he was looking at where he kind of would call this modernist artist that was really you could see influences where artists were very much blending their kind of personal local cultural practices traditions those of the region you know maybe the country they're from with oftentimes a kind of european influenced aesthetic not exclusively agnaldo de santos uh, didn't and and so for for Bayer, he saw Afri- quote quote like African aesthetic in the Brazilian work. So there is definitely some kind of problematic kind of paternalism supporting kind of going on in this moment. But just you know, I feel still despite that, it probably had an opportunity for again artists 
through the journal, through the exhibition to kind of see relationships. And and again, there was already existing relationships between Brazil and Nigeria, because oftentimes through the slave trade, and I, and I don't exactly know all the dates, but I will say that there's stories about family members who were taken or individuals that were taken that also got trained in iron professional iron work that then returned back to Nigeria. They actually were able to create salaries for themselves, free themselves, and then return to Nigeria. They were able to still be in contact through, through trade, maintain some relationships, and then built these beautiful Brazilian style homes in Nigeria, you know, in the, you know, mid early 20th century and kind of establish themselves as very wealthy individuals and, and patrons of the arts. So there's already this, there was already this existing connection between those two countries specifically. And there's several scholars such as uh, Henry Jewell who've discussed that legacy through the Brazilian influenced architecture that the Brazilian form, you know, formerly Nigerian Brazilian, you know, descendants kind of brought with them when they came. So that was another kind of relationship that I wanted to really show. I ultimately wanted to kind of show some of these tendrils, you know, the fact that Lawrence was also introduced to Avanish Chandra and uh, Francis Souza's work, you know, coming from India, and they were also trained in the United States and Europe. So again, there's these legacies, not only British kind of imperialism and colonization, but also these threads of of this of this journal really trying to give you an introduction to artists who were creating incredible work, modern contemporary work that weren't exclusively in the United States and Europe. And so that was some that was, you know, one of the ways in which this project got larger and just so appealed to me that kind of got me in this rabbit hole because the way in which we are taught as you know art history, especially modern contemporary, it's still really, it starts with Picasso. Or, or Matisse. <laughs> or Matisse, like, but it starts in Europe, you know, and, you know, the discussion of, of how you teach art history is a whole other conversation, but ultimately that doesn't negate the fact that there were still and continues to be ongoing art practices happening around the world that maybe be influenced from other countries, but that are very decidedly also within their own. And that, and that their pioneering engagements exactly. with Africa didn't necessarily reach to. Yes. So as part of producing this show, you acquired some works for the Chrysler, one by Skunder Bagassian from 1966 and Jacob Lawrence Market Scene also from 1966. What role did those acquisitions play in the production of the show and within the project? Well, it was definitely, I was very keen to have works in the Chrysler's collection that related to the show. And my director at the time, Eric Neal, was very supportive of that. So we were able to really use, I'd already been working on the project. And so in discussions with different collectors and, you know, auction houses in terms of actually finding works, it wound up coming that there were some opportunities to acquire for the for the collection artists that were not already in the in the collection, and you know as a as the kind of curator of modern and contemporary, you know globally, I got the opportunity to add to the collection, which for me was a very big coup. The museum, also the library, was able to acquire in the library collection several of the Black Orpheus journals, the original editions, which was great. And we were hoping to get a, we were hoping that we would get a full set for the show, but we didn't, but we found a collector who was very gracious to lend. 
And we also, right before I, I left, got a slightly later uh, Bruce Anabarpea print. So for me, it was really important to add these works, not only to, you know, because they were going to be in the show and in the collection, but it expanded what the collection had. These fit within our, these fit within my acquisition uh, collection goals to enhance its modern and contemporary collection, especially in the, in the mid 20th century where Equestria is a very good Axrock expressionist group and collection, but not necessarily globally. So I wanted to really try to utilize that and expand it. So bring in that mid 20th century work that are especially by people of color, as most as a lot of museums are also trying to do. So I was able to kind of, you know, kind of knock a few birds with a couple of stones. And definitely there's more work to be done. But I was very, very proud that we were able to find works because a lot of works are in private hands or they're not necessarily in American collections with the exception of, you know, some. So it was, you know, to think it just, it, it will hopefully make more accessible, you know, these works and these artists names to the general public. Love it when acquisitions and exhibition research go hand in hand. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Kimberly Gant, thanks so much. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful and can't wait for you to see the show and can't wait for everyone who's listening to come see the show. Please, you got three, you got three different venues to check them out. So hope to see you at one. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.